What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. People have a misunderstanding. And like if, you, if you've been to Safauk, Safauk is the shooting part of Sephardic, right? So it's a, a basically a 10-day shooting course with a, a small amount of CQB thrown in. But it, it's basically the the shooting portion of Sephardic, which is an eight-week course. So for two of those weeks, we're primarily focused on marksmanship, and then you get a few other tasks thrown in on top of that. Well, the other six weeks really is about decision-making because that's the the structure of the training is that we we teach you to make increasingly difficult decisions. We're, We're just using CQB as the the teaching tool in order to do that. But really it's that course is all about decision-making and, and that's, you know, that, that follows over to the units where that's where what most of our training is, is like, yeah, we shot a crap ton. I, I was talk, talking with a guy the other night, uh, my assault troop, we, we, we drew roughly 18,000 rounds of nine mil per person every 17 weeks. Uh, for the 12 years I was involved. So well, like we shoot a lot more than most people have the opportunity, but even that, that's a small part of the training. The majority of the training is how to make decisions under stress, how to make decisions under pressure, and then continuing to increase the pressure and stress to make the decisions harder to make so that, yep. so that you can make them. Yeah. Well, and Kurt, something you'll be, you'll be happy to know because cephalic is run at the group level and it's I, I saw a change over 20 years did various structures because like in the early in the early 2000s when we were doing back to back to back Iraq rotations we were actually doing a full month and two weeks of it was on the flat range and two weeks of it was um CQB centric uh then I, I went to interestingly enough you were talking about explosive breaching and like the SWAT cops realizing that explosive breaching was awesome so I went to a uh, the most unique cephalic I ever did was the fifth group slots were all full up. So my ODA went down to Alabama, to Anniston, Alabama, where I think it's uh, it's 20th group now headquartered down there. And we did 20th group cephalic, which was a month long. And it was, frankly, it was pretty outdated in terms of like their most recent Sephardic grad. And this was in 2012. Their most recent Sephardic grad was from like 2004. And most of them had graduated Sephardic in the nineties. So as far as TTPs, they were actually a little bit behind what was being, you know, like a one five was teaching us or like Charlie one, one was doing. Um, but it was the best mechanical breaching training I've ever gotten in my career. Cause at fifth group Cephalic, it was explosive breaching and ballistic breaching only. Whereas all these guys were full-time SWAT cops and part-time SF guys. And so like everything from Halligans to quickie yeah. saws, everything else we, we were doing. And when the, the Uvalde thing went down, it took me back to that cephalic because uh, they taught us techniques for a center block wall breaching where you've basically got two guys hammering away with, with 10 uh, pound sledges perforating the wall. You know, it's gotta be like eight foot high and eight foot wide. And then, I was, I was the big dude with the 40 pound Ram that would run up like a Kool-Aid man and just straight up take the wall down. Now, no element of surprise, 
but for a circumstance where you've got kids inside a classroom dying, you know, all I could think was like, man, how valuable would that have been if they could have implemented that and know how to do that? So yeah, the, the, the S the guard SF dudes who were full-time SWAT cops taught us a ton about mechanical breaching. Only thing that sucked was we then went to Afghanistan where none of the doorways or walls yeah. or anything else were remotely close. But, uh, uh, yeah, so Safalic changed over the years. And then my, the last Safalic I took part in was uh, Sodic or Sodic 2, which they changed to CIFSIC, but our, it was the local sniper course run at the group. They would align the classes to where the Sodic students were there for six weeks learning sniper stuff. But our culmination exercise aligned with the Safalic culmination exercise to where they the Safalic committee was integrating snipers into their full, final exercise full mission profile. Um, and so Cephalic's come along a long way in the, in the 20 years that I was in from like, I saw like the 10 day iterations and then they got it to where it was like a four week to six week deal where they were no kidding doing sniper integration, you know, you know, hellebore assaults and like the planning and everything else uh, at the end. Now, obviously the quality is not going to be as good as it is at range 37, but for the average ODA to get that you know exposure every couple of years, pretty good. Yeah. So. Big Tech's ordinance has everything from complete firearms to OEM and aftermarket parts. If you're looking to put together your first AR-15, they have everything from those parts that you need to the tools that are going to be essential. If you're looking for suppressors, night vision, handheld lights, weapon lights, sights or optics, you name it, Big Tech's has it all. Not only that, they're offering all those brands that we like. Go visit them at BigTechsOrdinance.com. Overwatch Precision is a team of civilians and combat veterans based in Phoenix, Arizona, that employ industry-leading production methods, coatings, and materials in their striker-fired polymer-framed pistol trigger systems. With an internal engineering team focused on thoughtful design, Overwatch's flat-faced and curved triggers safely deliver a mechanical advantage to your carry or duty Glock, Walther, CZ, P10, and Smith & Wesson MMP 2.0 with improved function and increased accuracy. See more at overwatchprecision.com. Filster makes awesome holsters. But not only that, they also happen to be one of those companies that are trendsetters. A lot of their designs are emulated by other companies. Not only does Filstered make those holsters, but they also provide concealment systems like the Enigma, the Flex. They also have a lot of solutions when it comes to concealment solutions for medical. If you need to have a concealment first aid kit, they happen to sell them. Check them out at filsterholster.com. Primary Arms Government recently showed off a new giveaway, which features a new Daniel Defense M4 V7 rifle, complete with GLX 1-6 power first focal plane rifle scope, PLX mount, and more. These monthly giveaways are only open to first responders and members of the military, so there's way less competition for the big prize. Entry is also completely free with no purchase necessary, ever. So if you want to have a chance to win, just visit primaryarms.com government and hit the giveaway button at the top. Walther is the performance leader in the firearms industry, renowned throughout the world for its innovation since Carl Walther and his son Fritz created the first blowback semi-automatic pistol in 1908. Today, the innovative spirit builds off the invention of the concealed carry gun with the PPK series by creating the PPQ, PPS, and the Q5 match steel frame series. Military, police, and other government security groups in every country of the world have relied on the high-quality craftsmanship and rugged durability of Walther products. Walther continues its long tradition of technical expertise and innovation in the design and production of firearms. For more information, visit WalterArms.com. 
everyone, Matt Lanford here with Primary and Secondary. Welcome to Modcast. Today's episode is 332, if I recall correctly. We're going to be talking about honing the processor. And what I'm talking about is helping with decision making. And our brains are basically the processor. Chuck Pressburg had a really good video about this um, that unfortunately due to some of the content I had to take down, uh, it wound up offending a lot of people, but it was just the basic <laughs> truth. Oh, yeah. These guys are going to talk about that. Um, it's I, I'm looking forward to this discussion because some of the concepts it, within this, it applies to everyone. If you're carrying a firearm, these are important things to, to be aware of, to keep in the front of your mind. Uh, decision making is absolute paramount. Um, and and a, a concept that seems to be not very popular is part of that decision making also could be to avoid a fight. And avoiding a fight could automatically mean you just won. Could, could. Um, so my background's in law enforcement, been doing the cop thing since um, last century. Been really enjoying these deeper discussions, talking about concepts, talking about things that these ideas can go with us. I can't necessarily always have a gun with me, but I can have these ideas with me. And these are also things that we can bring up in conversation and help influence others positively. Now, one of the things that I like to say with every episode is make sure that you're supporting those sources that you have found to be beneficial. What I mean by that is if you like what these guys have to say, even though you probably won't find Kurt plugging anything, find where these guys are, like them, subscribe, share, especially if they're sharing some stuff that's really beneficial to you. That goes with everything primary and secondary. Um, right now, I can tell you this is going to be a great conversation. And so you probably should preemptively hit like. So just do that right now. Hit like. If you haven't already subscribed, it's time and make sure you share this video. But I, I don't mean that. I don't, I don't want to say that uh, empty. If this does benefit you, if this helps, make sure you share it. Um, because not everyone's at the same level. And some of these, we've had conversations in the past where it gets so deep, it might not be the best thing to share to a newbie. But we have our peers that we know where they're at roughly and conversations like these come up and this is a beneficial um, tool to use. So I think that's pretty much everything on my side. I'm going to throw it over to these guys to do some intros and then we'll start up the discussion. Kurt. Uh, my name is Kurt Weber. I'm a retired SF guy. I've uh, been a contractor for quite a while now. Uh, retired from the Army in 2005. I uh, worked for mostly for the State Department for about 15 years, and now I manage a DOD program training foreign staff in Asia. And Chris. Hey there, everybody. I'm uh, Chris Seipert. Um, similar to Kurt, I'm a, I'm a former 18 Series guy. I uh, was born and raised in Texas. Um, joined the Army in the year 2000, spent most of my career in the Special Forces Group as an 18 Series, uh, 18 Delta primarily. Um, was also an instructor at our uh, Special Warfare Center in an Advanced Skills course and retired in 2020. Uh, since then, I've been I've done a little bit of defense contracted instruction um, at my old organization, as well as doing some, you know, executive protection, security consulting. And then I work for a citizen defense research where I teach open enrollment classes around the country, uh, primarily directed towards uh, armed citizens. So 
how would you guys, how would you uh, say the genesis of this whole discussion started? I know we had, some, we had a, a chat going and you guys were talking about some really cool stuff. And then I think someone determined, you know what? This probably just needs to be an actual discussion and not just in text. Hmm. I'm trying to remember. I've had too many uh, mild TBIs. Yes. Uh, so if I remember correctly, we, we were talking about um, pure technical shooting versus uh, shooting that involves thinking, you know, and obviously at the most elementary level and what most people jump to when they think about that is, is target discrimination and shoot, no shoot. Um, I, I raised a couple of points about um, how shoot, no shoot doesn't necessarily just begin on the first round and then you mag dump into a target and bring your head up after you've run the slide lock. Uh, and we got into talking and, and Kurt has some, some great stuff. Um, and so I'm very interested to hear Kurt's points today because my, um, my focus tends to be an experience, frankly, when it comes to target discrimination uh, is primarily dealing with that initial, because like when you're trying to teach Indige, I'm sure Kurt will agree with this, unless you're talking about top level soft from foreign countries, um, if you can just get them to like shoot the right people, then beyond that, like how many rounds they put into somebody or don't put in somebody is kind of, eh, you're not as worried about it. Um, whereas since I became a civilian, something that I've really been noticing is the number of people who on a flat range where I tell you, at the beep, you're going to fire six rounds in the A zone as fast as you can. Okay. That's great. And that's a great way to train. But if that's all you ever train, then you end up putting six rounds into somebody regardless. And so that's kind of what my point was in the text and, and how uh, Kurt and I started discussing this. Yeah, uh, basically that. We we were discussing in chat the, the, the different ways of, you know, how, how to train to be able to make the decisions faster uh, how fast is, you know, if, if you can outshoot your timer and splits, that's great. But is it really, does that make you more effective as a defensive shooter? Uh, how it applies the difference between military and police. Um, I, I know from my experience of training, cause I, I worked at the, the schoolhouse as well. I worked at Sephardic, uh, the school that teaches CQB for the, the SIFs and CRIFs. Uh, I worked there for four years. My experience of working there and being exposed to a lot of other training schools, uh, other both military and police, was that you know the the the, the old thing of you know you you default to your training on, under stress. Um, one one of the things Larry Vickers said to me a long a long long time ago was he he had something like a seventy thirty rule. It was like your your default will be like seventy percent of what your training was. So you'll you'll you're you're you've only understood a portion of what you've been taught. You only understood like seventy percent of it because nobody understands everything. But then once you go to apply that, you're only going to apply seventy percent of that seventy percent that you learned. So your if your training has been mag dump every time I get to the target, then you don't really, a lot of times, you don't understand the why. You don't understand that it's a training tool. Uh, what if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. 
Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. It's, you know, er, early on in, in my training was, you know, with, with double taps. You know, d- double taps are a training tool to get you to shoot more than one round. It's not because two rounds are going to finish the fight. It's because we don't want you only firing one. We want you to go through the process of mitigating recoil, managing recoil, finding your sights again, coming back onto the target, and then fire another round, perform that same thing, and move to the next target. Well, guys, for, forget that it's a teaching tool, not the end. And then so then they get into a fight and they fire two rounds and they move on. Well, and that guy's still shooting at them because those two rounds weren't effective. And they they skipped that learning part of why I'm doing it. And that 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 was what Larry was talking about is you you didn't get all of the points that you were supposed to learn. And then when you went to apply them, because you're under stress, you're not going to apply them per- perfectly. That goes with uh, the conversation I had with Mike Heiser, who I was hoping he was going to join us, but I took some notes and it was essentially, why do we train and what's the point of it? And ultimately it's to, to be better at our skill sets. It's not just to shoot those two rounds or do the mag dump. Chris. Well, you know, I think, I, I think you both just hit on something, you know, the why I think that something trainers in the training community need to, Uh, be mindful of is it's very easy to just tell somebody what they need to do um and it saves time if you don't explain them to them the why you're just like hey you're doing this drill do it okay cool um the problem with that and i am just naturally garrulous and long-winded anyway but i i I explain to people like when i teach private lessons when i teach class i'm like hey listen i want you to understand why i teach pistol grip this way one so that you know, like, especially when I teach ladies, I'm like, you're going to go back home and your boyfriend, husband, you know, dude at the range is going to be like, nah, that's stupid. Don't do it this way. So I'm trying to arm them with the conceptual theory behind why I'm teaching what I'm teaching. But also it's, it's, um, you know, the, the number of people in internet comments who don't understand the difference between, uh, you know, a, a drill, an assessment and a scenario. Um, and they'll, they'll watch a drill and say it's a crappy assessment or a crappy scenario. And I'm like, yeah, I know that's not, it's not, what we're trying to measure. It's not, what we're trying to trying to train. And so, uh, you know, I was listening to Kurt at a, years ago, around the same time in, in groups of which is the, basically like the Sephardic qualified guys in each group will teach a Sephardic train up for, for uh, teams before they go overseas, special for special force advanced urban combat course. I remember the time when we started drifting away from double taps or controlled pairs and towards every up drill would be a, Hey, fire somewhere between two and six or seven rounds, because we don't want to start building, you know, building in that muscle memory of a fire two and reassess. Cause around that same time I read a, a yeah, and I think it was literally in Guns and Ammo or something, but it was like an Alaskan cop or an Alaskan sheriff's deputy or state trooper who had been trained, you know, fire two shots and reassess and did so and got murdered with the perps, you know, 44 Magnum because she fired two rounds, lowered her gun, and lo and behold, the dude was still in the fight. And so um, a lot of times when we run students, trainees, whatever, through drills, uh, and through assessments and through anything, it's important to contextualize it for them in their own heads. Cause if you're not careful to do that, they're going to turn around and make assumptions like what Kurt's talking about of like, Oh, you just fire two rounds and they fall down. Cool. And then they learn the hard way downrange that that doesn't work very well.
Yeah, uh, you know, that, that, that was something uh, I got to Sephardic in the mid 90s. Uh, and that was something we started training uh, because of really because of Somalia. Uh, that, you know, two, two rounds of green tip may may have the effect that you want. Um, you know, green, green tip was one of those things where it really depended on who you talked to of what they thought of its performance. Uh, and one of the things that came out of it was the, the guys who enforced marksmanship training on their teams to a much higher standard had much better performance out of green tip than other guys did, but still you didn't get, you know, it was not fire one shot or fire two shots. Uh, what is it in IDPA? They have the tactical engagement where it's one, 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 and then two on the last one and then come back and get your twos. It's like, all that's good. One round may be good. Is is there a reason to fire one round and switch to another target? Maybe. Is there, you know, are, maybe are you better to put all of your rounds until one guy goes down? Uh, one of those questions that can't be answered until it's too late. But, you know, all, all of those things that – that was where the the original discussion came from was if I'm shooting, you know, uh, if, if I'm Travis Tomasi and I'm shooting 0.07 splits, then how, how good does that make me in a gunfight? Or, you know, what is the relevance to it as opposed to fire, let my sight settle is the target still in my, still on my sights, then pull the trigger again. Let the sight settle. Is the target still on the sights? Then do I need to pull the trigger again, or can I safely move off of it? And you know, how fast can you make that that decision? And that's where visual acuity and you know, quick decision making. That's where those become much more important skills than how I can't get that in view. How you know how fast can you do that? I, I have my camera blurred because I got nieces living with me, so they're running around getting ready to go to work. Um, it's, it's interesting. You mentioned though, like yeah, the splits thing, because that is, um, depending on the context, the importance of it changes in the military context. Uh, you know, if I'm in Afghanistan, Iraq, or, or name your combat zone and I, and I possibly identify a bad guy, you know, he's got an icon in his hand, he's got a gun in his hand, whatever it may be. Um, and I do that part and I do just basically as fast as I can press the trigger until he's like, laying there, you know, dead and dead and smoldering, um, the grace that I'm going to receive in that context. I mean, if, if I put, you know, two or three in the guy's chest, you know, one or two in his side and then two or three in his back, cause he's spinning around to get away from the ouchies, um, in, in Afghanistan, presuming the dude actually has an AK land next to him after summer, nobody's going to look at me and like try to hit me up over that. Um, and then you get into, uh, you know, police shootings, and I'm sure we've probably seen these, I can't think of it a specific example, but generically it's the, you know, the perp ended up with like one bullet hole here, one bullet hole in his shoulder, and then four in his back. And I, just guessing, I would guess that like, you know, that person did a whole bunch of bill drills trying to get down to those jailbait splits. Um, and like exactly what Kurt was saying, um, the dude was still in their sight picture, but they were pressing the trigger so fast. They, they weren't like, Oh, Hey, this dude is turning to run and ended up as a cop in a, you know, sticky situation where it's like, why'd you shoot the guy four times in the back? 
and uh, you know, for science Institute and a bunch of other bodies out there have taken a hard look at processing speed and stuff like that, but it would be a whole lot better if, you know, if after round one or round two, the dude starts to turn, drops his gun and basically goes to either run or just cower. Um, if you've got the processing ability, obviously you'd like to improve your processing speed. And I'd love to hear Kurt's thoughts on that. Um, but like one of the ways is, is, um, you know, would we like to be able to turn, you know, uh, to turn a corner in a race car, you know, with our foot all the way on the gas without ever touching the brake? Well, of course we would. But like most of us, most of us normal humans have to get off the throttle a little bit and slow down a little bit to make sure we've got time to control the control the race car. And so for a lot of people, if you can shoot, you know, 0.2 splits, 0.18 splits, 0.22 splits, that's awesome. But if you were to do a drill kind of like John Murphy's drill with the red light, green light, and like when you see the green light, you start shooting. And when you see the red light, you stop shooting. What that drill that Murphy does teaches a lot of people is like, man, I put, you know, I put four rounds into that dude after the green light was, or the red light was posted, you know, which was basically the dude drops his gun, the dude throws his hands up, or the dude turns back to flee. And in the law enforcement world, I would say it makes a much bigger difference than the military context and in the civilian world, even more so. Because um, if I'm in the, you know, Walmart parking lot and end up putting four rounds in a dude's back, um, then I may be running into some trouble. So, Kurt, what, what do you think about processing, like improving processing speed? What have you seen? Uh, first, like this is how old I am. Is in in the schoolhouse we 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 called people either eighty eighty six chips or Pentium three chips. <laughs> uh, if, if, if remember the, the, the first smart book that the army gave, that was like four inches thick that you could, you know, drop from an airplane without a parachute, uh, had an 8086 chip. And that was like the slowest thing that you could actually put into a computer. Uh, and like there, there is a natural limit. Like there, there's one, uh, some of the stuff from force science Institute talks about, you know, decision-making speed or visual acuity speed, how fast your eyes can process, and transmit it into action. And like, there's an upper limit on that, but like not everyone is at that limit. Some people are naturally going to be lower than that to, to a varying degree. So if you, you know, if you take a, someone who's exceptional, maybe 0 0.15, 0 0.2, uh, we, you know, we, we used to use at the schoolhouse, like basically like 0.25 or 0.3 for, for a decision-making, you know, how, how long we're going to give the students to make that, that decision. Um, but, you know, it, it's possible to be faster than that. The reality is, is that most people are much, much slower down in like the 0.5 to 0.75 range. Um, and that's a long time for your eyes to see something, work its way through your brain. Okay. What was it? I just saw, I think it was this. No, wait, no, oh, that was a guy with a gun. He's pointed at me. Now I've got to turn that into action. And so that all of that takes time. Uh, one of the things um, when I, I took over the last couple of years at Sephardic, I ran the, the CQB and breaching side. Um, and one of the things I was very insistent about was one that the CQB scenarios that the students were being taught were teaching a certain point that, that we presented them a problem that I wanted them to be learn how to solve uh, whether it was you know one single target in a corner with a two-man entry 
well, that teaches you that you've got to got to look in your corners. And now I've got a target in the corner in the center. You know, now which one should I be seeing first? Which one should I be engaging first? All those things have to build and support because part of that thing, part of that UDA, the, the that second O is being able to process the information based on the knowledge that you already have. And without exposing the students to knowledge, you can't ever get them to improve because everything is always just panic. It's all, it's always, you know, per, pure condition black. Um, so over time through the course, we expose them to different things. I teach them how to solve different problems, what possible correct answers look for in known situations. And then I introduce them to force on force. And one of the things with force on force is I used very, very scripted uh, force on force scenarios to again enforce certain teaching points, certain problem solving scenarios with a known outcome where I, I, you know, where you can look at it and say, if you had made this decision, that would have been obviously wrong. If you had made any of, you know, one, two or three decisions, any of those would be conditionally right. And then just based on what that specific scenario, where you were in the room, what the lighting condition was, how many rounds you had already fired, you know, all of those things take into account to lead the students to get to that point where they start to get faster. Because at the unit, one of the things we saw was like one of the things that makes assaulters so good at making fast decisions is constantly rehearsing your CQB at right at the ragged edge of being able to identify targets and get accurate hits and working at that speed all the time, you get faster at it and you get faster at identifying, you get faster at putting your sights on target and faster at pulling the trigger. And all of that's just practice and, and, Conscious and, it, and you, yeah. And it, and it will improve to a point. The, the, my issue with, unscripted CQB training or unscripted force on force was that especially with force on force usually just turns into adventure training. I shot you. No, I shot you. No, I shot you. Or guys will, you know, I, I had one instructor one day repelled in on the students in a room. I'm like, that's awesome. And I applaud your, your thinking outside the box, but what point are we trying to teach these students to overcome? Yep. You know, that, that they should look out the window for a rope that I'm not, not a part of the school. So, you know, that part you have to use very carefully. Otherwise it just turns into everybody shoots paint at everybody and everybody gets covered in paint. And what exactly did you learn from that? Yep. Yeah. I think, I think you're right on with the repeated exposure being a, a big deal. Um, as a, you know, a different, different analogy. Um, but you know, I, so I was, I was never a halo guy. I, I, uh, I was a static line jumper my whole career, but I probably, I probably had 20, somewhere between 20 and 30 jumps before I ever consciously remember making the four second count out of the aircraft, you know, that I would, I'd, I'd make my exit. And then like the next thing that I actually remember for my first 20 plus jumps was like, Oh, Hey, my shoot's open. I'm not dead. That's cool. Um, you know, but then once you get a hundred static line jumps, you know, it becomes fairly like my awareness has increased my, my field of vision. I'm not getting the auditory exclusion stuff anymore. Um, and the, you know, it's like people talk about 
you know, rookie quarterbacks versus after they've been in the league a couple of years, they say the game is slowing down for them. And it's as they've been immersed in that, that's, you know, enough scenarios and enough situations, you know, they, they start to, um, you know, develop a consciousness because, you know, I, and I can't, uh, I can't speak to being a Spartan instructor, but I know that, you know, the, and I, I experienced myself as a, as a young SF dude is, you know, the first time that you're asked to do CQB and somebody, you know, shows you, okay, like, you know, Hey, here's your points of domination or whatever it may be. And, you know, you've got, you're looking at the world through a soda straw, you go through the door, you look at the corner and then you like stare at the corner until you get to it. And then you're doing this. And, and then you can watch young guys when they're first, first learning to do it. Yeah. They're, they are overwhelmed with everything they need to be worrying about everything they need to be looking at, like where to look and in what order and for how long. And, and, um, and, you know, you, you can have you can have the instructor stand in the middle of a room while guys are going through dry and sit there doing like this. And then like, OK, you new guy, how many fingers are holding up? That dude doesn't have any idea uh, because he's just worried about not tripping over his own feet at that point. And so I think the more you're immersed in having to make those decisions at a high level, it just becomes comfortable. Right. You build up, you know, just like when you when you lift weights and you get you know, your hands hurt and they blister, but then eventually you get calluses on them. You're developing mental calluses to where the speed at which you're trying to um, move and think isn't overwhelming. And so uh, the tough thing about the civilian shooting side, which is why what, what I can speak to more now, is that um, people aren't doing that. Uh, you know, most civilian you know, armed citizens are. If you if let's say you take a guy who's got a thousand hours of firearms training, um, with a lot of people, it's just going to be a thousand hours of flat range punching paper training, and there's nothing wrong with that. But there's no target discrimination. There's no how many rounds do I need to put into this guy or not? You know, do I need to shoot this person? This person is literally a thousand hours of you know no medical, no verbal, no empty handed combatives. It is. Upon the beep, I fire the prescribed number of rounds with no conscious decision making, and so so now they're not they're literally the opposite of you know the the JSOC guys that that uh, you know Kurt's referencing, who are doing discrimination and thought drills and exercises constantly, you know, with their career on the line. She screwed up enough, and like you're going to go somewhere else. So um, yeah, civilians punch a lot of paper, and that's awesome. But if you're not leavening it with you know, forcing yourself to make those decisions on, do I need to get my gun out? Do I need to press the trigger? When do I stop pressing the trigger? Um, G Gabe White has probably the simplest for civilians. I remember him saying it. I was like, crap, I don't think I've ever heard that in a civilian class. Cause like we all, any good instructor is going to spend time talking to people about when it's time to get out a gun, when it's time to press the trigger, what are the threat, legal, moral, ethical thresholds for lethal force. But Gabe's class was one of the first open enrollment classes I'd ever heard where he was just like, if somebody meets the threshold, right? They've got a crowbar, knife, gun running at you, telling you they're going to kill you, whatever. Um, you skin your smoke wagon and press the trigger so long as the dude's in your sight picture. Now, obviously, if you see his hands go up, stop shooting. But otherwise, um, when he leaves my sight picture, either he's, you know, laid down, doesn't want to play anymore, in which case I'd stop shooting. He's fleeing, in which case I should stop shooting. Or he's, in honestly, in civilian gunfights, he's maneuvering on me, which, let's be real, how often do we see that? Or some, you know, a gas station carjacker is maneuvering on the threat. Um, in which case, cool, you bring him back in your sight picture and continue to provide customer service. Um, but that was the first time in a ton of civilian handgun training that I ever heard somebody tell me when I should stop shooting. Because I know we just had an incident down in Houston recently in a taqueria where a dude just kept kept giving the, uh, it was the armed robber 
and uh, apparently who had a toy gun and an armed citizen decided to shoot him and was 100% justified in doing so. And his first four rounds were perfect. His second four rounds were somewhat questionable. And then his last round was really not, not great, not great at all. And so if somebody had taken that dude aside and, you know, maybe told him about it, put him through scenarios to like, let him know when I need to pump the brakes. Um, you guys ever do the, the go-kart thing uh, at, you know, like, Putt putt, you know, you ever you know, race go go karts? What do you do in those things? I don't know about y'all. I am on the gas the entire time. Do you ever let off the gas? Do you touch? Yeah, and do you ever touch the brake? And usually they're not powerful enough to to uh, you know to do anything about it. But if you were to if you were to do that in a real car on a real racetrack, you just spin out at every turn. And and it, I think we do a really good job in this, the civilian open normal training industry of teaching folks how to really match the gas, and we don't necessarily emphasize feathering the brakes and how to how to throttle modulation um in the real world when again those four or five extra rounds may be the difference between good shoot or you know four years for manslaughter well hell i don't even know if that's even really addressed in the law enforcement realm and this it's something that i i emphasize a lot we respond to something and i have to ask newer officers okay why did you just draw your gun what justification do you have to have your gun out right now as my guns in the holster? Um, question for you guys. We, I don't know if we're going to get into this aspect of it, but do you see a similarity between uh, potential, I guess, for nationals and U.S. citizens in their absorption of this kind of stuff? One of the conversations I had prior to this was talking about how culturally some cultures are a little bit more ready for some of these concepts while others are not so much. They're not really a warrior based culture, I guess. And we, and I, so the examples I, I was given were poles and fins are these hard charge and whatever's and their, their basic soldiers are, are awesome. And then there are other countries where eh, maybe not as much They're They're great people, but. I, I, I taught a, uh, Counterterrorism SWAT course to uh, the Dhaka Bangladesh SWAT team uh, for when they first stood up, um, and the the Bangladeshis are by nature like most Asians are there are by nature they are not forward and aggressive the way Amer especially Americans and Europe and some Western Europeans are. Um, they're very very laid back, very you know trying to be calm, trying to not be the guy who's forward and loud and aggressive and being the obnoxious American. American, um, exactly. And and like to to my way of thinking, they are very, very timid, um, which is which does not make for a good SWAT guy um, in, in most places. Uh, and so the whole class was, you know, we're, we're there for six weeks. The whole time that I'm with them is trying to get them to be more aggressive in CQB. You've, you've seen the guy with the gun. You, you, now is the time for you to make your decision. Well, we left there and like most of the classes, you know, for the, the 15 years I taught for State Department, every single class I left there thinking it was a total failure. I, I never got anything across to these guys. Um, I didn't leave them any better than, than when I got them. And usually within a week, sometimes less than a week, usually sometimes even during the class, uh, I would get a call from their 
their command or from somebody at the embassy saying, hey, your students were just involved in an operation and they just smoked a bunch of bad guys and rescued hostages. And hey, that you know, they wanted to pass their thanks and we want to pass our thanks. Um, and so, you know, you, you forget that. Did I turn them into Delta Force? No. Um, was I ever going to? Probably not. But I, I can make them better than they were. Yeah. And, and I can probably make them better than the bad guys are going to face. Um, but to come back to the Bangladeshi guy, I came back to Bangladesh two years later. And the, the class leader was a little 105 pound, five foot eight, maybe 110 pounds uh, in, in class. I come back two years later and I, I'm walking through the police headquarters. Six, and, eight, uh, three, 20. Oh, <laughs> one, one of the officers in the, in the course that I'm teaching is like, yeah, that's where the SWAT team is. And the door was open and I could see a guy in there who's got a, a broad muscular V-shaped back with muscles on him that you can like visibly see his muscles. And I'm like, Holy crap, the SWAT. I wonder if there's anybody in there. I know like, that guy turns around and it was the class leader and he came running over, gave, gave me a, a, a big hug and was like, now I understand what you were yeah. talking about. Now I see all of those things that you mentioned. And now I just want to say thank you. That's awesome. So that is, yeah, all occurred experience, very similar to my experience in terms of like the cultural differences and stuff. What's really interesting is is one strong similarity that just now dawned on me. I just had an, well, I don't know if it was original thought, it was original to me, um, is one of the mistakes when I was a younger SF dude, um, when it came to training our indigenous partners was that um, you know, that we had to make them into Delta Force. Like I had unrealistic expectations of what I would be able to take this force from in a period of, you know, two, <clears throat> three, four months or whatever. And as I got older, I came to realize that um, it really, rule and priority number one was just safety. You know, no, none of our, none of our, you know, none of the guys on our team get hurt. None of the, none of the trainees get hurt. Um, priority number two really was to just foster positive relations um, you know, have fun, build rapport. Uh, and then, you know, priority number three is, yeah, make them better, you know, make them better than we found them. And if that's 5%, that's 5%. Um, you know, because you could easily, uh, turn around and burn rapport with all these guys where it's like, Hey, these dudes are a bunch of jerks. Um, and, and funny enough, like when, uh, when Jordan committed troops, uh, to Afghanistan in like 2000, like the, the late aughts, uh, Jordan said, Hey, we'll, we'll send some of our special operations guys to Afghanistan. Uh, the King of Jordan's stipulation was he wanted him accompanied by fifth group ODAs. Do you, can you guess why he had that stipulation? Because when he was a young special forces captain in the 1980s, um, he worked fifth group teams and had a really good experience. and was like, I like those dudes. Those dudes are all right. So like, yeah, special forces in that respect is very much a like low level, low level diplomacy where, you know, some of these military commanders in these countries we're working with are going to end up sitting in parliament. They're going to end up being important decision makers in their country. And so we're these low level ambassadors building rapport and, and gaining the trust and respect of our, our, our partners. And that's a fun part of it in the civilian world. I, and I usually tell, especially in my private lessons, right. Our open enrollment classes tend to attract like, you know, for real hobbyist shooters, I mean, hobbyists in a positive fashion, like that's, this is their hobby. They shoot, they take class all the time. But in my private lessons locally, it's a ton of, you know, 40 year old woman got a divorce, bought a gun, is her own protector for the first time ever. And I'll tell them like, look, our first priority is to be safe. 
Second priority is I want you to have fun and enjoy yourself. So you come back. And then, you know, obviously I'm going to make you, I'm going to make you better. But if I make you better, but if I, if in trying to make you better, I make you miserable during this training experience. Um, you know, a lot of people are just never going to come back. They're never going to sign up for a second class. Not, not just with me, but with anybody. Um, but in terms of the yeah, cultural differences of aggression, hundred um, percent. What I dealt with, with a lot of our partners in the middle East was uh, fear biters in combat, which is to say they were not aggressive. They were not confident. Um, Cause I tell people all the time that uh, true tactical maturity is being able to tell the difference, especially in like the counterinsurgency environments that we've, you know, worked in the last 20 years. I know the difference between effective fire, ineffective fire, incoming. I mean, incoming effective fire, incoming ineffective fire, and fire that's nowhere close. Because if me and my team walking through this Afghan village just death blossom every time we hear a round pop off, you know, a, a kilometer away, the locals are going to sour on us real quick. Right. And so I had a, we, we had a partner nation with us in Afghanistan who were manning the guard towers of a particular uh, outpost. And I won't name the country, so it doesn't matter, but we went down, we had a small 25 meter range. The, the base was on a hill just down the hill. Um, and we had just gotten into country. So we went down there to, to confirm zero on our uh, personal guns and, uh, you know, we basically batch tested a, a, some grenades. We let the talk know. We let, basically, they disseminated the guard towers. Everybody knew that we had a half dozen Americans going down and make some boom booms just outside the wire. At the same range where it had been for like five years at that point. First rounds get popped off and all of a sudden a 50 cal opens up above us on the hill as these, these partner nation forces uh, just start death blossoming into the, fortunately into the desert. There was no inhabited areas around us. But yeah, they just heard gunfire and just started going cyclic on their, their 50 cals and their 240s. Um, so what I found was a lot of times they would be passive and timid when they didn't need to be, but then they would fear bite and just go death blossom and fire every weapon system they could because they were overwhelmed and didn't necessarily have that relaxed confidence that you want in dudes in combat. Because make no mistake, when it's time to death blossom and just go cyclic in every direction because you're taking casualties, do it. Um, but all the the other 99% of the time when it's not time to go ham and not time to go cyclic, um, you got to have the maturity to you know hold back and let the situation develop. Because we we burned a lot of bridges throughout the last 20 years with with you know both partner forces and American forces that were just way too quick to start shooting in every window and doorway. Well, that works perfectly with the overall topic also of keeping a, 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 a cool head and being able to assess as you shoot. That's, I was uh, guarding a general officer one time and it was my shift to sleep and a, the, the guy who's awake on residence watch comes and wakes me up and says, hey, they're they're shooting. He's like set up in bed, and it's like so. I hear some gunfire, and I'm like, are are they shooting at us? It's like, no. I'm like, okay, if that changes, let me know. And I and I went back to sleep, and and in the morning he was like, how could you be so calm? And I'm like, well, they weren't shooting at us. There's there's no telling what they're shooting at. They could have seen a spirit in the in the forest outside their house, and they're going to scare the spirit away with with gunfire. Someone just got guns. married. Um, yeah, somebody got married. A, a wedding. A an earthquake. Uh, you know, if, if you ever watch Fear Factor Asia, the, the top three fears in every Asian country 
or ghosts, vampires, and zombies, and then it just the, the order changes. So, you know, somebody will be walking from their house to someone else's house, something, they'll hear a noise, see a shadow or something, it's a ghost, and so they let off a magazine into the jungle, and it's just, it makes it go away. Does Joe Rogan host that one too? You know, I can't remember because I used to watch it a lot because it was really, really, it's even, it was even funnier than the American version. Mm -hmm. uh, but no, I don't think Joe Rogan was on. I think they had hosts for each country, um, but it, it was pretty amusing. But that was one of the things that it was like every time it was like, you know, top fear in the Philippines, vampire, ghost, zombie. Like, hmm. Really? That's, that's that, like, those aren't even in my top 50. No, me neither. Um, the uh, it, it's interesting we're talking about um, you know, talking about throttle control, right? Because um, there's no substitute for experience, but it's tough to get a, get experience. And I think that's probably the next next thing. But while I'm on the topic of throttle control, and we would, I mean, the nice thing about special forces specifically, Green Berets, and that's all I can really you know speak to in an educated way. But we, you know, we'd be patrolling in Afghanistan or Iraq. And, but we would have a very diverse team where you've got, you know, this guy's been on the team for seven years, uh, you know, whereas this guy just showed up first deployment, 18 x-ray. And so you get somebody over the radio, every patrol early in a deployment, say, Hey, we got a spot over here in the wood line and, uh, you know, to the West or whatever. And I look over and there's, you know, some 50 to 80 year old Afghan dude in the shade watching us tromp through his cornfield, like space aliens. And, and, uh, because it was not my first radio, I'm like, okay, maybe he's a spotter. And he might be, and let's keep an eye on him. If we see him busting out an ICOM or he starts scurrying off real fast, let's keep an eye on him. But like, maybe he's just an old man watching the space aliens walk through his cornfield. I'd certainly gawk at us if I was him. And so, um, but the tough thing is, is that, is that, you know, again, out there in the civilian world and even in the cop world, if you don't have, if you're not surrounded by people that will pump the brakes when you start amping up like that, um, it can be real easy to get yourself into a pickle. And, and so, I guess my question would be for people who are not in special operations or in elite, uh, you know, law enforcement agencies or law enforcement units, uh, you know, what are some fixes to that? Um, like how, do, how do we help people get that experience that want? I think it's what you just said. It's the old guys need to be around and they need to be observant and they need to be good influences. And that influences just by merely going about your day the way you normally do. Cause the new guys are watching that. But also when the new guys are doing something dumb, bring it to their attention and say, hey, hey watch that. Don't, don't do that. That's, that's dumb. One, one of the things I did both at Sephardic and with State Department is you know, con contagious excitement because of radio transmission. Once one person starts yelling into the radio, like everybody that's listened starts to, starts to get amped up. And so, you know, one of the things, uh, one of the differences between Sephardic and like the, the uh, Delta's operator training course is the, the first time you watch those guys at the end of their training course doing CQB, you realize how quiet it is. And the first time you watch a Sephardic class, especially on their first day, is how loud they are because everyone's yelling. And so it's like one of the very first things, and especially when they would get on the radio and it's like, stop, like administrative halt, 
take 10 deep breaths. Now say what you want to say again to him or say what you want to say again into the radio. Okay. Okay. Uh, uh, okay. We got contact there guys down the hallway. I'm like, did, did that change the transfer of knowledge? Like did, did that make what you wanted to say easier or harder to understand? And then, okay, continue, do it again. And so continue to stop them and continue, just, just relax for a second. Okay. Now say it again, put that, put that back out over the radio one more time. Yeah. So I'm, I'm sitting here and I'm thinking about um, just force on force training in general. And as a, as an aside, which we, I don't know, we might get around to talking about a detail. I think in the, I've seen in the military, I've seen really, really good force on force training. And I also saw, you know, plenty of bad force on force training in the military. Uh, you know, I'd assume it's probably the same in law enforcement. There's some good, some bad, uh, in the civilian world, um, partly because of the difference between customer service and making the customer happy versus giving them what they need, making them eat their vegetables. Um, you know, and to be fair, I haven't seen near as much force on force in the civilian world as I have in the military, but like, you've obviously got the guys from the ship works collected, you know, Craig Douglas, his, his stuff is awesome. Um, but it's really interesting, like going back to what Kurt was talking about, about how people get amped up. And especially if you're doing it in groups that, you know, people get amped up and it's contagious where if the, if the ground force commander is yelling into the radio that everybody else getting spun up and having their panic raised and their decision-making ability go lower. But you know, I, speaking for myself, you know, I've done tons of combatives training, tons of force on force training. And yet I go to uh, ECQC, you know, uh, with Craig Douglas and, you know, I put on that, I put on that fist helmet, smelly fist helmet, and I can feel my blood pressure climbing, my heart rate climbing. And I'm about to go into the scenario where I've got to make decisions and whatnot. Um, and so that in and of itself is valuable just so people can feel that, Hey, I'm about to square off possibly with some other opponents. Maybe, maybe not. I don't even like using the term in my own force on force class. I don't call the other role player a bad guy. I call him a stranger because it may just be somebody that needs five bucks for gas. Uh, may not be a bad guy at all. But what's tough in the civilian world is I think there's a lot of force on force training that they call it force on force, but kind of like what, what uh, Kurt was alluding to, they don't have a terminal learning objective for each scenario. And it's not, hey, I want to teach them this principle, which they can then apply in the real world. It's, hey, we're basically going to have people have fun gunfighting with each other with simunitions or airsoft. And they'll have a blast for two days, you know, Saturday and Sunday, shooting each other up. But we're not necessarily like specifically tailoring the scenarios to do I shoot? Do I not shoot? When do I, you know, what level of force? Do I need to yell at this person? Do I need to pepper spray this person? Do I need to choke slam this person? Do I need to, you know, uh, shoot this person? And when do I need to stop? And so I don't know in the civilian world that there's a ton of great force on force training available to folks. I know where some of it is again with the Shivworks guys, like, um, you know, Craig Douglas and, and Cecil Birch and those guys. And I know like Guy Schnitzler does some really good stuff as well, but I feel like that's one of the areas where the training industry, the open enrollment training industry is hurting is there's not a lot of really thoughtful force on force being constructed out there. And if you guys are aware of any or have any thoughts on that, I'd love to hear what you think. I, I would think probably Darcy, but I, but I don't know because <laughs> I've never been there. So uh, let's see here. I think I'm at around a thousand hours over Darcy alone. And <clears throat> it's not all force on force. There's lessons and all that. But as soon as the sun goes down uh, Monday to Friday, 
we're out doing force on force until the wee hours of the night. And then the following Saturday, the, the morning till mid afternoon, we're doing just force on force constantly. It is completely structured. It is awesome. Um, it's structured to a point that the op four are, they're probably the most professional op four I have ever experienced in anything over the last 20 something years. I've been playing with this crap and there's, you know, there's a, Oh, I'm, I'm blocking my, my camera right there. There's my, uh, my nice little SIM gun. Um, professional op for, they know what their roles are. That's huge. As opposed to just getting random people and, okay, we're going to get in this gunfight. No, these guys know how to push, how to help the objective occur because they know what's being trying to be taught. And they are tools. The op for at Darcy are absolutely tools. And I don't mean they're like negatively. No, they are a wonderful force, wonderful people, the whole facility. I can't recommend it. Uh, I, I bring it up constantly. The downside is all of my, well, the downside for me personally is all of my experience though, is in the, the closed enrollment stuff. Now there are open enrollment Darcy. There's, um, Oh, I can't remember what the name of the class is, but I've heard nothing but great things about it. And there's, there's some, there's uh, fighting, there's force on force. There's, essentially survival. Um, I think it's Tusk, uh, something urban. Yeah. I can never remember the name of it, but that is, that's going to be a a good structured, uh, experience. And it, it definitely every, every minute, every hour, there is a purpose behind what you're doing and you're not just doing mag dumps. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. If I, I, go ahead, Kurt. I, I know, like you know, as as a leader, I, I was an, an assault team leader in, in in my chef, and like as a leader, my role was teach the four idiots that are going to be running around combat with me because my life really will depend on them, and my mission accomplishment really will depend on them. And so, the more they know, the better they are at their jobs the more likely we're going to accomplish our mission, the more likely we're all going to come home alive. And so I took that training very, very seriously. And there's a time for adventure training and, and, and I enjoy adventure training. And usually when we did it, it was on flyaways and we would set up a target somewhere and we would go to the local police station and say, Hey, do you guys want to be op four for some military guys? Um, and cause that would be fun. That, that, that would turn into a, a, slugfest where we all sat around and shot at each other with sims and great there was no learning there was no teaching point uh other than you know flashbangs work and explosive breaching works um was usually the one teaching point that the police took away from that was like wow that stuff really worked uh but otherwise that you know that there's not much because you don't know where you're going to catch a guy. You don't know what you're going to see. You don't know what the light can. You know all of those variables that that happen in CQB. If if you're not controlling them, then you're then you're not controlling what the desired outcome is. And that that's why in training I took it very seriously to control as many of the variables as I could because I wanted the point of the training to be to, to either drive home a technique that we had practiced dry or live, or to make them solve a problem so that when that problem came up later, you know, in, in combat, they would be able to look at that problem and go, Oh, wait, I can, I can already orient this problem in my mind. And that helps me arrive at my decide and act. 
over at Darcy, everything is controlled. And even opt for a position in specific areas to force the students to have to make specific decisions. And just even lighting levels are controlled. Everything's controlled. It's such, I absolutely love it there. I don't think I uh, talk about it enough. Yeah, so if, if I ever win like the billion dollar Powerball lottery, right? Which after taxes and lump sum, I'll get like half a billion dollars, which, you know, I can make that work. But like my my dream, and the, and the reason I would have to win the Powerball is because it would be crazy expensive. It would operate at a loss because you wouldn't get a ton of people signing up. Um, but I would create a, you know, basically a Mount City. Uh, and But I would hire role players to where rather than having these 10 minute, 15 minute scenarios uh, you know, for civilian force on force that you get where it's like, okay, I'm going to get out of this vehicle and the two or three people I interact with are going to be somehow involved in the scenario. I'd be running like two plus hour scenarios where, you know, Hey, here's your map of the city and you've got to run errands. You've got to go grocery shop. And there's going to be, there's going to be somebody, you know, there's going to be a cashier in the little grocery store over here. And there's going to be other shoppers. And then you're going to walk back out of the parking lot and get in your car and drive down here and get gas and extended you know, two plus hour scenarios where you, you can't game it and you don't know where, you know, who's going to be the person who uh, interacts because some people are just going to be asking for directions. Some people are just going to be needing money for gas or panhandling or whatever it is. And you're going to interact with dozens of people over a couple hours. And then, you know, at some point in there, somebody's going to try to rob you. Somebody's going to try to carjack you or whatever else, but the amount of money, effort, time it would take to set something up like that. Uh, and then to actually make it proper profitable as an open enrollment course. I think that's one of the challenges to the open enrollment world is that which makes the most money isn't always necessarily what is the most needed for the private citizen. Because um, as we talk about adventure training, you know, the, the, and I think I've said on this podcast before, the most lucrative thing I could do would be to start making, you know, Instagram videos, shirtless with a light coat of oil and a plate carrier, like running around, running and gunning and run a tactical fantasy camp. And there's nothing wrong with that as long as it's safe. But if you're trying to help people with exactly what we're talking about, target discrimination, you know, controlling the throttle of your trigger uh, and understanding that sometimes, you know, a de facto bill drill is appropriate. If you're behind the eight ball and a dude just buried an ice pick in your chest. Yeah, it's time at that point to shoot the fastest splits you can shoot high center mass. Um, but being able to get off the throttle as soon as you need to, um, that's the kind of stuff that the common person, not necessarily the, the, the primary and secondary modcast viewer, but yeah. the common person that's got a gun and has a license to carry in their state or, or however it works, doesn't know that they need that. Um, and so they go to classes where it's, you know, hey, fastest splits possible, fastest draw to first shot. And they never are really made aware of the need to maybe think about it a little more holistically. Just decision making in general. Yeah. Because that stuff's not fun. Like I, I've no, got it's a, not. I've got a, I've got a maps class, uh, mental agility planning or preparation and planning skills class. It's like an eight hour, just all day discussion. I usually try to package it with one of my life fire classes, but yeah, it's a, Hey, we're going to spend a day talking about the mental processes of contingency planning for your life, you know, doing risk assessments for your life. This sounds uh, cool. Right. And it's, and that's the thing is, and the, the paradox of that class, and it's one of my favorite classes to teach, but the paradox is the people that know enough to sign up for it, typically would be fine without it um, because you can, you know, go check out books, at the library and figure all that stuff out. Whereas the people that it would do the most good for um, don't know they need it and don't sign up for it. Whereas if I ran the, you know, 1200 round a day carbine class where we were Aussie repelling and, you know, firing at a cyclic, cyclic rate, they jump all over that. 
So I love teaching that mental agility uh, and you know planning class. But um, the frustration is, is that the people that I encountered out in the world that need it the most, I can't convince them to sign up for it because they're like, how many rounds you shoot? I'm like, no rounds. They're like, oh, yeah, I'm not interested at all. So, yeah, it's just a paradox of the training world. And I looked it up real quick. Uh, Darcy Tusk is Tactical Urban Sustainment Course for anyone that's looking at that. Uh, Chris, are you going to be at TACCOM? Yep. Are you going to be teaching? Nope. Nope, not this, uh, not this year. I'll be there as a student. I'll be there trying to make the top 16 again this year. Missed it last year by the skin of my teeth. Um, but uh, doesn't doesn't matter because uh, a whole bunch of my my CDR homies will be there out shooting me anyway. So, um, but uh, yeah, I'll, I'll I'll be there tack on running around. I actually this year intentionally signed up for less live fire classes so I had more free time to wander into classrooms and stuff because as, as great as the live fire stuff is, like last year Craig Douglas needed role players for his. Uh, um, experiential learning lab, which is phenomenal. If you go to TACCON, you should sign up for that. If you haven't already, it's probably too late, but um, yeah, he was looking for role players for it. I had to turn him down because I had a live fire class that I didn't want to, didn't want to duck out of since I was already hard, hard slotted into it. But yeah, are you, are you going to be there? Yeah. I have not signed up for any live fire. I, I don't want to, I want to get, I want to get lectures and cool stuff like that instead. Yeah, and the, and the paradox too of, of all all the the big conferences, but especially TACCON, is you know I run into people once a year at TACCON, we're catching up, you know, just like hey, how you been? How's the family? And then all of a sudden you're like, oh crap, I gotta yeah. I gotta get to my live fire class. Yeah. So this year I actually I think I signed up for just two instead of the the normal complement of four or whatever it is. So uh, yeah, I'll be there. Cool. And Kurt will not be there. I, I will. I'll, I'll I'll be here. He'll be on the other side of the globe. Yeah. Taiwan or Mongolia or someplace. You say, Kurt, are you just like permanent party overseas or, or do you just come and go a lot? Uh, I'm, I'm here for the, the length of the contract. So right now we're through the end of next September. It's a long uh, time. Yeah. So I'm, I'll, I'll make a decision. I, I may have the opportunity to, to move up. Uh, to a, a management position that I could do from the States. Um, so I may take that. I may stay here for another year. It depends. I, I'm not sure. My wife is Thai, so it's good. It's good for her. Yep. So one of the aspects that uh, also talking to Mike prior to this, that he brought up was how do we train? And it's greatly predicated by our resources. And obviously the military side is going to be very different from the police side, different from the civilian side. Uh, one of the things um, that I did uh, with my team and a, a little bit at Sephardic uh, is based on the concept of immediate threat and CQB. Uh, and there's a, definition of immediate threat and the, the, you know, the definition varies depending on what unit or what school. Um, but most guys would say it was, you know, a, a bad guy within arm's reach or within one to three meters or someone that you're going to bump into when you come through the threshold. And my argument is, is a guy on the other side of the room with a PK machine gun already pointed at the doorway is he going to impede your movement into that room? And, and my answer would be most definitely, yes, he will. And so, you know, now is he an immediate threat? And, and this was a thing with, you know, a, an, 
an instructor argument is do we go, do we teach them to ignore that target that's deep in the room? Or at what point do we start to let them expand their vision? And really it became, you know, student by students. Some students are going to see it faster. Some students are, are not. You, I could put 50 targets on the back wall and there would be some guys at, you know, the day before graduation that they still would not notice them until they were in their point of domination. Um, what, what I used to use for my own training and what I started doing with my team was playing cards as a, uh, put up, you know, a, a, a club and a heart on, on the back wall and then go through fire one round at the, at the club, ignore the heart and then have a target in my corner. So I'm having to see, identify the that playing card on the far side of the room, engage it before I've crossed the threshold. So as I'm coming through the threshold, I can now turn and engage a target on my, in my primary corner, because uh, that's for us ones and twos, you know, we, we clear corners first. Um, but if I can see that target and engage it, then I'm okay to shoot it while I'm coming through the threshold. And the, you know, the, then the, the teaching point is as well, if I could engage it and shoot it, are there bullet holes in it? And, or, you know, if I was using Sims, then is there, is there a Sims round on it? And, and that became, becomes the grading factor. And then with, with my team guys is I would just, I would stop them with an air horn. If they had engaged that far target, once they were past the threshold, once they were already in the room, it's like before they could turn to, to come back to that corner target, stop them. So like, okay, look where your feet are. You're four steps into the room. It took four steps for you to make that mental adjustment from, I see two playing cards or three playing cards, I know I have to shoot the heart. How long did it take you to make that decision, then get the sight on the target and then be able to pull the trigger. And if you could do that in that step before you cross over the threshold, that's great. If you have to do that four or five steps into the room, that's not so great because there are other people that you've just, you know, you've by the system that we use, you've put yourself in their sector of fire. Now, no one's covering your sector. You're blocking their sector. You've screwed that room for everybody. And okay, stop. So how do you fix it? Slow your feet speed down. Uh, one of the hardest things to teach students, and this was both US and foreign, is slow your feet down to the point that you allow your brain to make decisions and your body to react to the decisions. And and in CQB, all that's related to how fast you're moving. The, if, if I'm at a slow walk, I can make a decision, identify the target, get my sight on it and engage it long, long before it's um, past a critical point where an error has occurred. And, and that's a hard thing for people to, to, to grasp that five, five, six is way faster than feet. And it doesn't matter how fast your feet are going. If you're making good decisions, ID and targets quick and putting lethal rounds on target, like as soon as possible, it doesn't matter how fast you walk because the structure is going to be cleared in no time. Hey, Chris, how tall are you? Um, so a legit six, two and uh, three quarters. Okay. So, and I'm six, five. Yeah. And what Kurt just discussed, that is a reality also for those of us that are taller than most, my stride, my one step is going to be several for others. 
And I need to bear that in mind because if, if, if I might be the first one through the door, everyone's going to try to catch up with me. And yeah, that's another facet to, to keep in mind with how, how my normal walking speed is going to be a, a larger or a quicker pace for, for those average humans. Yep. Yeah. I mean, Kurt nailed it in terms of, uh, I was, and I was waiting for it because he was talking about, you know, what constitutes an immediate threat in CQB and well, it depends. Depends on the shooter, depends on a lot of context, because like what's an immediate threat for me may not be an immediate threat for him in terms of recognition and all kinds of other things. Um, and yeah, foot, footwork, uh, a propos of, you know, t- kind of tangential to what we're talking about here. But yeah, footwork's a big deal because I know that in initial CQB training, almost everybody tries to move too fast. And the hardest thing is to get them to slow, slow down and process. And then as you as you're able to process faster, you can move a little bit faster. Um but you know, even like, you know, at entry, being able to take a quick step, but then immediately decelerate, you know, once you've cleared the doorway, that kind of thing is, is super crucial. Um, but all of that stuff is individual. And this kind of goes back to the original uh, premise of, the, of this talk is um, if you were to if you were to you know, put a gun in my head and force me to, to make a decision on appropriate combat speed splits for uh, you know, an armed citizen or maybe even a cop, although I wouldn't try to speak authoritatively to that. Um, I think that about as fast as the best shooters can like shoot while deciding like, okay, does he need another yes? Okay, does he need another yes? Is somewhere in the neighborhood of 0.4 to 0.5 splits. Like if I, if I need to be able to put pump the brakes as soon as the dude drops his gun or as soon as the dude turns to flee, you know, 0.5 splits are, are about it. Um, but that being said, if, if for different shooters, it's going to be different. Um, because, you know, there might be somebody out there who just processes slow, isn't a very experienced shooter and doesn't really, everything's still moving really fast for them. You know, their perception of time is accelerated. Who, you know, it might be 0.7. Um, and, you know, like uh, I've not I've not shot with Kurt on a range. Uh, I did shoot with Bill Blowers. So it was actually super frustrating. I took a Scott Jedlinski class. Um, and I show up, I ended up standing next to Bill on the range all weekend. So every time I'd have a good run and I'd be like, yeah, all proud of myself. And then it would be Bill's turn who would immediately just destroy whatever I'd done. It was going to keep me humble. But yeah. Can, you know, can Bill, you know, shoot incredibly fast splits, you know, with pretty good discrimination in between those. Sure. But if you just, again, it's that context thing. If you just watch a really good shooter shooting on Instagram and, and don't ever kind of think through to like, okay, that guy may be good shooting, you know, 0. 0.2, 0. 0.3, 0. 0.4 splits. But if I do that, my accuracy is suffering. And, and just as importantly, my decision-making just isn't there. Right. You know, that I basically, I press the trigger and then I black out until whatever it is, six rounds or the full mag or whatever. So it's, it's just like the, just, just like immediate threat. Um, it's going to depend on the person. Uh, and so really if, if by nothing else, people watching this podcast on YouTube or, or listen to it on the, you know, uh, iTunes or wherever, just put some thought into it. Uh, cause if you can shoot 0.2 splits, that's awesome. But can you think fast enough to make every one of those shots a conscious decision, which is not as big of a deal in the military world, certainly and in the combat world, but in the law enforcement world, or especially the civilian world, Every one of those shots has to be a conscious, legal, moral, ethical decision, or else you may have to answer for it in front of a jury or your peers. And, so- and then also, also in those, uh, with that in mind, uh, the 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 range that we're talking mm-hmm. is going to be 
So if I'm, if I walk into a gymnasium and on the far end is my threat, it's going to be different than I walk in into a bathroom and there's the threat standing right there. Yeah. I was, I was just watching a, uh, an active self-protection video the other day that popped up and, uh, and it was, it was a law enforcement officer who was, uh, his first shots were at 50 with like 0.23, 0.27 splits at 50 yards. Didn't, didn't connect with any, on any of them. And then it, he closed to 25 and was shooting even faster, even faster splits, uh, connected with one or two of those. Um, but something in, and it's, I talked about it in my maps, uh, my decision-making class where I kind of tell people how they need to think about training where, um, the number of students that I have, like private lesson students who just bought their first gun a couple months ago, who are like worried about addressing active shooters, for example, you know, the, the Walmart shooting in El Paso and stuff. And I'm like, listen, um, you know, being as gentle as I can, but I'm like, look, you're, you're struggling to keep it on paper at five yards. I don't think you need to worry about charging in to save the day for an active shooter just yet. Uh, because at a hundred meters with a, with my, like with a red dotted semi-auto pistol, not, we're not talking about me with my LCR or anything like that with a red dotted semi-auto pistol at a hundred, hundred meters, I'm somewhere between an 80 and 90% shooter. Okay. And like you say, and this goes back to that decision-making and doctrine of competing harms, which doctrine of competing harms, just a legal doctrine. That's like, if you're, if you're presented with two, two bad choices, you need to choose the less bad choice, you know, the less negative choice. So if I'm in Walmart, and I look down and there's like dudes with ski masks and AKs robbing the jewelry counter and they're not shooting anybody and they're a hundred yards away. Um, if I, if I press the trigger, you know, if I draw down and press the trigger on them, there's a 10 to 20% chance I miss maybe greater under stress. Um, and then there's a certain percentage chance that miss is going to strike a, you know, a nun or a special needs kid or whatever else. Right. Um, in that scenario, I'm keeping the gun in the holster. Um, if it's the El pa the classic El Paso shooter, where it's just literally dead civilian, dead civilian, dead civilian, dead civilian, my math changes. Because yeah. uh, at that point, even if I miss with my first round and hit a civilian, I'll have to live with that the rest of my life. But then I put the bad guy down with my my second round. Um, I, I can live with that choice. The big thing is, is like you're saying, knowing knowing your capabilities, whether it's drawing on a drawn gun at a gas pump, whether it's engaging somebody across a gymnasium, knowing what you can do and what you can't do under, under, uh, under stress and on demand. And, um, frankly, like making that decision in the moment based on previous training. Cause I think there's just a lot of people out there that they got their gun, they passed their license carry call. That's all. Don't need anything else. Yeah. They, and they're ready to start blasting a dudes down the, down an aisle of a home Depot, um, without really a, an awareness of all these different, uh, considerations at play. Uh, something you said, uh, made me think about the, the speed of the, the decision-making of the shot, uh, a, a good, a, a good way to get a visualization of that is that a USPSA match where there's a uh, swinging target that swings between hardcover and look at how fast a legit grandmaster will put two rounds on that target versus a D class or an unclass shooter. Uh, how, how long is he tracking that target back and forth, trying to make a decision of is my front sight in the right place? Do I have my dot on it? Oh my God, I can't tell as 
when the target swings and the, the GM comes out and bang, bang, and he's moving on to the next target because he knows his sights were there and he knows what he was doing when he pressed the trigger. I, I, when I lived in, in uh, at Fort Lewis for a short period of time, one of the guys I shot with every weekend was Travis Tomasi, which if he's a professional USPSA shooter, but he's like legit the fastest person I've ever seen pull a trigger. He he had a a special timer because a regular timer couldn't pick up his splits. Uh, he he would regularly shoot 0.07 uh, on with his with his uh, I forget what he had a Caspian gun I think um, just incredible blazing trigger speed, but also really good visual acuity and visual processing that complemented it. And, you know, the, in olden USPSA books, it was like playing cards on the ceiling fan and try and pick out one of the cards. Uh, now there are computer programs that flash and you try to, you know, pick, pick something out. Um, all of those things that make your eyes see faster than, than you think that they can, and then start turning that that visual acuity, that visual speed, start turning that into processing speed of decision of when I see that now I can pull the trigger. Kurt wasn't, so he wasn't he on the army student team and in the AMU for a while. Yeah. yeah. Kind of After like the corporal, right. Or for a while. Uh, I, I, I think he got out as a E6. Yeah. Cause uh, if you... when, I, I knew him before he, he went, he was a, he was a 17, 18 year old kid. Uh -huh. uh, running around that ba basically owned the entire Pacific Northwest for an op open class that the, there was nobody was going to beat him. Didn't matter who sh you weren't going to beat him that day. Yeah, he was. Well, and I, he first I first became aware of him because it, and for years, I don't know if this is still true, but for years, if you if you searched on YouTube or Google like world's fastest reload, it was a video of him. Yes. I think before he's in the military where he's literally as close as you can get to hitting the, the mag that's, that's falling out of the gun as he's as he's replacing the other mag. Yeah, phenomenal shooter. Um, the and really, I think that speaks to something really profound where in this on the civilian side, Folks are dedicating a tremendous amount of time to the automaticity standpoint of like efficient shooting, just the mechanical processes, right? Um, and they're neglecting the side, you know, of layering the decision making over the top of that. Because, um, and, and certainly, I would never tell anybody, uh, you know, not to try to get faster, better, more efficient in your draw stroke in your split times. But, um, but that being said. Um, I know a, a buddy of mine went through ECQC, um, you know, I don't know, a couple of years ago and he, he sent me a video of, of one of his runs and his technical shooting was so awesome that it looked like murder. Like to, you know, that if you were just to like show it on the local news, you'd be like, Oh my God, that dude just murdered that dude. Uh, she shot the dude a whole bunch of times in a very short period of time. And it looked excessive. And, and I hate to say it, but depending on where you live in the U S and the, you know, the gun climate and everything else, that that's a consideration. Um, but uh, yeah, like marrying your mechanical processes of efficient technical shooting with solid decision-making. Cause if you don't build that side of it, um, you know, uh, Paul Howe years ago, I don't remember if I read it on his website or, or in his book, um, but he was talking about target discrimination 
Uh, and he said, you know, for, for the longest time in special operations, law enforcement, it was just hands, 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 hands. And what they started noticing was, is that, um, you know, you're looking at hands, what are you looking for? A gun, right? Um, well, the problem is when we teach dudes to shoot faster than they can think, and they do it habitually, and I saw this in my own force-on-force military experience, especially under nods. Uh, nods made it you know, that much that much tougher uh, on guys for uh, discrimination. But yeah, you you round a corner into a hallway, and then you're if you're obsessed with hands and hands only, then you see gun in a dude's hand. What do you do? You start tuning him up, and as you're at round three, four, or five, you're like, wait a minute, something's wrong with this picture. And then you index the scenario and like, oh, wait, that guy has a badge or that guy has a, you know, American flag on the top of his plate carrier. My bad. And so, um, yeah, teaching people how to process what they need to process visually in the right order, because, um, you know, the, the White Settlement Church shooting in Texas a few years ago, where, you know, Jack Wilson, you know, shot and stopped the active shooter. What happened a couple seconds after he stopped shooting? If you guys remember, it was armed you know it's texas so all of a sudden like armed citizens start coming out of the woodwork with guns and so one of the you know my greatest fears and nightmares is is i decide hey i'm gonna go put this guy down in my church or you know wherever and i end up getting smoked by a cop or somebody else who just is an armed citizen that saw somebody with a gun and smoked him and so that's the stuff that i just beat the drum of of making private citizens think about because we think about all the ways it can go right and we don't spend enough time thinking about how could it go wrong and how do we mitigate that? It's, uh, it, it, Pat McNamara, one of the things he, he preaches of carrying in your, your daily equipment is a super lightweight reflective vest that says security on the back or security or police. Uh, it's like when you get done, it's like put that thing on. And, you know, when, when people come in, it's like, hey, over here, here, bad guy's over here. I'm, you know, he's already been shot. He's already down. Yeah, was that? I mean, that was up towards your neck of the woods. Uh, the 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 hero who stopped. There was an actor yep. shooter killed a cop up in in Colorado. Um, I don't know, six months a year ago. Uh, the bad guy shot and killed a cop. Had an AR. Armed citizen shoots the bad guy. But then in the aftermath, decided he was. I don't know. I guess maybe he was going to go take the AR and clear it or something. But when the the responding officers show up looking for an active shooter with a carbine, they find a dude holding a carbine and put him down. So the guy went from saving the day to getting shot by responding cops because, again, he hadn't thought through, you know, not only when do I shoot, when do I stop shooting, what are my post-shooting procedures? Um, You know, yeah, whether it be a reflective vest or, um, you know, and I tell people all the time when it comes to post-shooting procedures, I'm like, look, I'll work with folks on safe reholstering. I'm a I am a, you know, I'm a tyrant on safe reholstering. Uh, I hate sloppy reholstering for private citizens from concealment rigs. If you, you know, like if, if Matt, if you've got to go hands-on with a dude while your partner's covering him and you've got a gun bucket that you can basically throw the gun up in the air and catch it with, cool, you can you can no-look reholstering, right? But if you're working your way back into an appendix rig, um, either look it into the holster or if it's not safe enough for you to look it into the holster because you're taking your eyes off the threat, it's probably not time to reholster anyway. Yeah. But I tell, I tell my less experienced, I teach a lot of novice shooters. I'm like, listen to me. If you're shaky, like you might be because you went from getting gas and going to Starbucks here in a minute to shooting somebody and like, don't, don't shoot yourself trying to work your way back to the holster. If you just got to set it down on the deck and take a step away from it as the you know cops wheel into the convenience store parking lot, that's good enough. Um, yeah, post-shooting procedures is a big, big, big deal. Um, 
especially if you live in a, you know, two a 11 state where everybody's got a gun because you'll probably be the best trained person there. So let's take a couple steps backwards and uh, not, not even resolve. Let's address some things that I don't know everyone has necessarily thought about. Now, if you're a regular primary and secondary listener, viewer, reader, whatever, you're going to be on the same page, but talking to people regularly, whether it be online, whether it be in person or whatever, there seems to be some interesting misconceptions as to what the process is where we're assessing, we're pointing, we're deactivating a safety if there's a safety and we're manipulating the trigger. Um, I know Pressburg has had some really, really cool feedback or some, some cool insight about that, talking about some of the training he's been through. If someone even manipulates a safety, if they're, uh, when they face off with an unknown, you get dinged for it. Violation. Yeah. Yeah. And, Let's talk and, about that. And in my school, that's a safety violation. If I, if I put no threat target, if, if I, if I was teaching a team in a single room, and for five runs in a row, there was a threat target in the number one man's primary corner. And on the sixth target, there was a no threat or no target at all. And I hear the shit because I got powered ears. The I hear that safety come off as he comes through. That's a safety violation. Yeah. And if he gets that, you know, that's that's a little one. Well, if he gets three little ones, that's one big one. If he gets three big ones, he's out of the course. He's he's. He's uh, doing what you know, we used to uh, call the, the failure drill. That's where you turn in your gear and you go see Glenda and get your plane ticket home. Um, yeah, let's talk about that in the real world. Because a lot of people are talking about, well, I'm going to go clear my house and my gun's drawn and weapon light and all this. It, yeah. It, it, it's again, it, come, it comes down to visual speed how how fast can you visually process what you're seeing and then how fast can you turn that what what you've seen turn that into a decision and then into action and all that's based on on the, the orient and as the that that, that Uda guy was was definitely onto something but like all all of those things can be improved every single step of those can be improved if you try to improve them incrementally. So improve how fast you can see, improve your visual acuity, then improve your decision or, you know, expand your life experience. So you're exposed to more of those things that you want to be able to make a decision on, then work on making that decision faster. And that faster decision leads to faster action. If you, if you just run in and it's like, oh, okay, there's targets in the room. I'm going to run in and shoot. You're going to do some things right. You're going to do some things wrong, but the the learning value of it was zero because you can't process, you you can't determine what it was you did good, what it was you did bad, or where you improved on those things. The, all of those things have to be set up in order for you to improve. They've got to be planned through, and you have to have a plan of improvement. And this right here is an excellent way to slow yourself down and to identify what you need to identify without pointing guns. Yeah. So, um, man, you, you just touched on some of my biggest pet peeves in the translation from, cause like 
there there are there are a certain number of areas where war is beneficial to society. You know, every time there's a war, civilian trauma medicine in the hospitals back stateside gets way better, right? You know, we've learned a ton about, you know, ballistics and all kinds of other stuff. Uh, but, but um, we do sometimes do a poor job of translating the lessons learned from overseas to back in the U.S., you know, when I was back in the day, when I was a young soldier sitting up in a turret, uh, you know, making the run from Baghdad International Airport down Route Irish to the green zone, I could point my gun at anybody I wanted to, uh, you know, with impunity, right? If anybody started creeping up on our convoy, then, you know, I'm pointing 50 cal at him. And for some reason, incidentally, you can point a machine gun or a grenade launcher at like Iraqis all day long, trying to get them to back off of your car, you know, uh, your convoy because you're worried about car bombs. But if you pulled out a pistol, you know, like we had, we had actually old school USGI 1911s, you pull out a pistol and suddenly they'd, they'd pound the brakes. I guess they figured you wouldn't light them up with a grenade launcher, but you might with a, with a 45. But, um, the problem is, is that like, there's a lot of great lessons learned and a lot of great dudes that have learned a lot of lessons and brought them back to the U S and the civilian shooting world. But like, but one of the things that does not translate is pointing your gun at anybody you want to do, you know, point, point your gun at, uh, you, on the internet, a lot of people use the term brandishing and certainly some States have brandishing laws, but you, if brandishing really is me flashing a gun, if I point my gun at somebody who doesn't need a gun pointed at them, um, and the prosecutor really, really wants to put the screws to you, that's aggravated assault with a deadly weapon. Um, and so one of the, the finer points of uh, civilian instruction that I hit on with, with people that don't know any better is I'm like, listen to me. I was like, uh, pistol is an intimidation tool. Like, <laughs> don't do that. Uh, you know, don't, don't, don't like, okay, I'm going to pull out a pistol and this guy is going to like get scared and run away. Um because if it is a like hardened career criminal and you're not serious about its use or expert in its use, that dude's probably had guns pointed at him before, might even been shot before. And, and he's going to know the score and, and know that like, yeah, yeah, whatever, buddy, I'm going to take that from you and kill you with it. Or what I, the, the people that I worry more about, honestly, is uh, because they generally violent criminal actors are, are rational actors according to their own way of thinking. What always frightens me way more is road rage incidents is, you know, my next door neighbor who's, you know, he just found out his wife's cheating on him and his, his, you know, his 15 year old daughter's pregnant and my dog goes over and craps in his yard. And like, he's going to take all his life's frustrations. Cause those, those are the interactions you see on video where like somebody sticks a gun in their neighbor's face and all of a sudden it's, what are you going to do? Shoot me? Like, the, the people that are outrageously mad. So yeah, handguns, intimidation tools, don't do it. It's not legally justifiable and it's not tactically smart. Um, so I do emphasize draw to first shot. Um, I don't obsess over like sub one second or anything like that, but having a rapid, reliable draw to first shot and draw to first hit, I think is really important as a civilian, specifically because the circumstances where I am legally justified to draw my gun and point it, but not press the trigger, is actually a very narrow set of circumstances. And here's what I mean. Um, most of the time for me, as a private citizen now, if I've made the decision to skin my smoke wagon and draw my pistol, the decision to shoot has been made. You know, there's a dude stomping towards me with a knife or crowbar, you know, from at a car's length, closing distance. And like, unless he drops his, drops his tool and runs away before I get on target, I'm pressing that trigger. The only exceptions I can think of is truck stop parking lot and a dude is literally 35, 40, 50 yards away and has a crowbar and is yelling at me that he's going to come beat my head in. Maybe then I'm drawn to the low ready, finger straight, 
you know, if I have an external safety safety on at the low ready, not even covering him with the muzzle and saying, Hey bro, like you need to take a step back. And hopefully that's enough for, you know, for him to be like, Oh, Hey, I should drop the crowbar and go away. But generally speaking as a private citizen, um, there's very, very few circumstances where you would be um, justified in drawing your gun, but not justified in shooting. And so pulling your gun out and running around, like my, one of my biggest pet peeves, I live in rural Texas. And uh, over the last couple of years, there's been a couple of inmates escaped from jails or work crews. And, you know, we've got sheriff's deputies and state troopers cruising around the back roads and the local community page, God bless Facebook, local community pages. Everybody's like, oh, you know, I got my gun. I'm ready, this and that. And people will be either talking about how they went outside to investigate a, a uh, you know, investigate a noise. I'm like, stop. Think about, think about that. There's convicts on the loose and you hear something outside. They might be stealing your car. So you're going to go outside with a gun in hand. Maybe one, you're giving up your tactical advantage. If you're inside your home, make them come to you. But maybe they get to drop on you, take your gun. Now they've got a, your gun and your truck. Or maybe they just come in and, and uh, cause if I, if I were personally, if like if I were a home invader or a criminal, I'm going to try to lure somebody outside because that's going to be the primary defender of the home. Um, and if I neutralize them, then I've basically got carte blanche in the rest of the house. Uh, and they're going to be more vulnerable outside under the carport than they would be if I was kicking in their door. But also you're just as likely to run into a sheriff's deputy or a state trooper who's crossing your property, looking for that escaped convict. And if you're standing there with a gun in your hand, how do you think that's going to go for you? So one of the biggest things I stressed is to, to arm citizens outside the home, like outside the threshold of their house is you need to make sure that your, your gun is remaining concealed and out of sight until the last possible moment. Um, because there's circumstances where I would feel confident drawing on a drawn gun. If the guy doesn't know I have one, whereas if I, if he does, if he knows I have one, then he's going to shoot me as soon as I twitch. So let me real quick. And the last thing I'll say about it. Um, we've all seen these videos about how you can't draw on a drawn gun. You'll die. But the test is always two dudes on the range with simunitions and one guy's pointing at the other guy. And he's like, okay, when you see me start to draw, you press the trigger. One of those circumstances, of course you can't draw on a drawn gun. Like you're, you're going to get shot in the face, but what's the benefit of concealed carry? This dude carjacking me, you know, at the gas pump doesn't know I have a gun. Uh, and he's going to exactly what Kurt was talking about. He's going to have to see me beginning my draw stroke, recognize that I'm producing a gun and not my wallet or my cell phone, and then make the decision to shoot, which actually buys me within that OODA cycle, uh, buys me some time. Whereas if I'm open carrying and the dude sees a gun on my hip, then yeah, as soon as I reach for it, I'm going to get smoked. But like there are circumstances where I might draw on a drawn gun from concealment where I never would open carry. And so concealing your gun until the moment that you have to put it into use is a good thing. And then with, with homes, the number of people who will not use handheld flashlights or weapon mounted lights, um, because they don't want to give away their position. That's they learned in the Marine Corps in 1978 or whatever, like, cool, man. Have you ever talked to somebody that shot their 15 year old daughter sneaking back in after a night out partying? Cause, uh, I have, and, uh, yeah, I'm going to, whether it's flipping a light switch or using a handheld, um, or as a last resort of weapon mounted light, which there are ways and techniques that you can do that without muzzling people. Um, yeah, not PID in your target is unacceptable in the civilian world. I mean, it should be unacceptable in the military world for the most part outside of, you know, Normandy, Iwo Jima, whatever. But, um, yeah, anyway, yeah, that's my big soapbox. Great Thanks, soapbox. It wasn't acceptable anywhere I was, so I, I don't know. I'm, I'm sure there are places where it wasn't. I wasn't at any of those places. So, yeah, it's it, it, interesting 
hearing, reading, interacting with people that seem to think, even cops, I'm gonna, my gun's going to be drawn. I'm going to be looking through. Wait a minute. What's our justification to have that gun out? <sighs> Job security, that's what it is. Yep. Well, and, and on top of that, let's say that I am in one of those very rare scenarios where I'm, as a private citizen, holding someone at gunpoint. Um, you know, a true low ready where you can see hands, waistline, and because what, and you watch, and I, I don't, I would never pick on cops. It's just that cops have now with the badge cams or chest cams, we just get more evidence than we do of civilian shooters. But like the natural thing, because if that's how you train it, that every time my gun's out, my front side is or, or dot is obscuring high center mass. Problem is I can't see hands. I can't see waistline. And that's how you get dude pulling out his wallet or dude just moving his hands furtively below the top of my slide. And I put rounds into the dude and then suddenly no gun is found. So even even if you are in those rare circumstances, uh, private citizens anyway, where you've got to hold somebody at gunpoint, knowing how to do so in such a way that you're not setting yourself up to shoot an unarmed person. And yeah, being on target when you don't know you need to be on target. Yeah, the only time that muzzle should be muzzling high center mass is when you've made the decision to shoot. But it's got to be trained. And even so, just like what we were talking about before, your distance to char target also has a lot to do with what low ready actually is because that's a sliding scale. Yeah. Um, I was watching a, a like 60 minutes special. Like I was in Iraq and there was, uh, I think Laura Logan was shadowing a seventh group team in, in Afghanistan and they fired warning shots at a rapidly approaching vehicle to their checkpoint. Um, and uh, one, they were doing it. They, they had suppressors on their guns, which that's one of those like, if you want to fire warning shots, then, you know, suppressed M4 probably aren't the ideal choice, but they, they ended up skipping, they ended up skipping rounds into the bed of the truck and like, uh, given some, uh, given some business to like a 14 year old was sitting in the back of the truck. And it was, again, they were firing warning shots, but they weren't thinking about trajectory and everything else. And I mean, it happens, you know, I, I get it in, in the heat of the moment, but it's yeah, stuff you got to train religiously or else it's easy to mess up. And I've certainly made my mistakes as well. Um, but that's why we're here talking about it. Right. Yeah. So what else I do you guys have? I never made a mistake ever. Yeah, that's, you know, and that, that's, that's the funny thing about it is, is that um, um, everything I ever say on any podcast, this one or, or anywhere else, uh, every lesson I've learned, I've usually learned through screwing it up uh, or having people around me, you know, screwing it up or whatever else. Um, but yeah, at the, at the end of the day, you know, I want people to learn from my mistakes. The cool thing is I was just talking to somebody the other day uh, about um, the beautiful thing about this era, the primary and secondary era, the, the, the era of, of like certainly YouTube and Instagram's got a lot of influencers and stuff that are, you know, that are just terrible. But uh, last year's TACCON, there was, there was a, uh, there was a guy named uh, uh, Dave Boyd who made the top 16 and he'd been shooting like 18 months. Um, but because we live in this amazing era where there's so much great information available to you. Um, he was able to skip all of the wrong turns that most of us at a certain age have made. I, we, I was joking with somebody yesterday, Lee Weems yesterday about how I learned the tactical turtle in 2004 in Safawak when the tactical turtle was the hotness, you know, strict isosceles hunched over, you know, shoulders crunched up. And like, that's how you run a gun. And uh, you know, I now spent like 10 years trying to unlearn that. 
Whereas somebody that comes along in 2023 can go from zero to hero yeah. uh, pretty quick if you know how to ferret through all the information and find good info. And so I, 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 you know, I almost wish I could have been born later so I could have just bought my first gun and then six months later been, you know, running it hot and doing all the right stuff because of podcasts like this one. Yeah. Oh, that's the goal. I think that's the goal of all, for all of our buddies, podcasts and social networks and all that kind of stuff is to pass on the good information. So people that are coming after us get these cheat codes. Yeah. Theoretically, one, one of the things that separates us from the lower animals is that we have the ability to learn from other people's mistakes. Um, I have not found that to be true very often. <laughs> it's true. Hell, even the box of holsters. Mm-hmm. Come on. Don't buy this, 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 and you'll be fine. Oh, I need to. I, oh, I love this holster. But this alien gear looks so uh-huh, Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I wrote for, for shooting illustrated. I wrote an article about how to pick a proper holster and I began like in my introduction and my conclusion, I made a reference to the ubiquitous box of holsters in the garage. Yeah. Like if you follow this advice, you don't have to buy 40 holsters. Um, You know, I would, and I wish I could make it even simpler in that article and just be like, Hey, here's the approved gear list, but people are going to do what they do. Um, So um. Let's see what else, what else, what else. I'm trying to think if there's anything else that I really wanted to get out tonight. Um, well, and you just said a word that it's it's a trigger for me. Approved gear list. So for me, it's understanding these are the criteria. This is what we're looking for. Mm-hmm. If it matches that, go for it. Doesn't matter if it's on a list or whatever. You know what? If it happens to look like this right here, that's going to be fine. And this, I think this is this holster that I just flashed for a millisecond was featured in your article mm-hmm. prematurely. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So about that, I won't say anything else about that. Um, what does what uh, Forrest Gump say? That's all I have to say about that. That's all that I got to say about that. Yeah, I'll talk to you about that offline. Um, so, uh, and, and that's what I try to do in that article is essentially be like, Hey, look, you know, yeah, stay, away parameters. Parameters. stay away from this, stay away from this. Yeah. Uh, although, and you know, what's funny though, is with people, uh, and I've said this elsewhere, I think I said it with Lee Weems last night is human laziness is one of the, is one of the things you can count on the most. And so I know y'all have both experienced this where you'll have, to, you'll have a novice come to you and they're like, Hey, what gun should I get? And the right answer is, well, that depends. Let me ask you some questions and, you know, your lifestyle and, you know, where you work and where you live. And but most people, that's not what they want. They just want you. They want to ask you a simple question. What gun should I get? And they just want they, you. To they say, already bought it. Well, yeah. They usually, just want confirmation. Yeah. Uh, yeah. As Tamara Keel says, when somebody Googles, does the Blastomatic 2000 suck? It's because they already bought it and they want to go argue with people online about how great it is. But like, yeah, most people just want you to tell them, hey, buy Glock 48. And, uh, and the, what, what gun should I buy? You should buy a chambers custom. Yeah. Maybe more than one. Yeah. Well, buy one and give it to me. Um, so yeah, people, the, the ideally you teach people concepts yeah. that way they can apply the concepts in their own lives. But a lot of folks don't want that. And so, you know, like the, the primary and secondary crowd is going to be, uh, you know, a lot more schooled up, as you referenced earlier, you know, whereas when you're dealing with the 98% of gun owners out there, they're just like, hey, what holster should I get? And sometimes, I'll, 
Yeah, I'll, I'll catch myself launching into my parameters talk, yeah. and then I'll be like, you know what, man, just 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 buy a Dark Star, a Filster, yes. uh, GM, GM Custom Kydex, and Henry. call it. Yeah, yeah, Henry Holsters. Um, I'll give them. I'll give them a list of half a dozen, and I'll say, find one of those, fit your gun, you'll be good. Get on Google and buy all of them. Yes, and, and let me know. O- over five or six years, you will find one that that you're that you're comfortable with. Mm-hmm. Well, what's fun with that kind of approach is, so three of them, I'm I consider friends. Mm-hmm. Jam, I, I I'm a big fan of. I don't. I'm not on really close, but uh, Filster is a sponsor for the uh, podcast. But I'm st- even as a sponsor, I'm still going to list off those four because you know what? They all work and they don't, they all do really good stuff. Oh, no, you're biased. Oh, they pay you. Oh, I, if they did, I'd just talk about them. But we're also bringing up Dark Star and we're bringing up JM Custom Kydex and we're talking about Henry. Yep. Well, and what you'll find is most of those guys will will recommend each other as well. Yes, they do. Um, I tell people, cause I've got a discount code for a couple of those holster makers, but I tell people all the time, I'm like, you know, uh, you know, John and Tom from, you know, Filster and Darkstar became my friends because I was a customer first, not the other way around. I was a big fan of their gear and I got to know them running into them at TACCON and elsewhere. And so, yeah, it doesn't always work the way that folks think it does where, yeah. um, you know, I use, the, I use the gear that I use and, and I usually end up friends with people that make the gear. Yeah. Um, so um, so what else we, what else are we going to hit on? We haven't touched on yet. I think one thing that we need to discuss is the picture behind you. We need to have another one made with your face there instead of Willy Wonka's. <laughs> yeah, that was a whole Lauren, Lauren Mischke. Mm-hmm. I, there's, I've wanted to buy every, everything he's ever done. Uh, but the Willy Wonka, uh, you know, you get nothing, you lose, yep. uh, you know, and only the only thing is I wish it weren't. I think it's like an FN 509 or something tactical pistol. Um, but uh, yeah, that is that is one of my, you know, Willie, Willie Wonka lay in the scunion with a tourniquet on one arm is one of my favorite pieces of art ever. He just uh, he just came out. I saw it on Facebook, came out with a uh, um, oh my, it's it's um, Brendan Fraser, Rick O'Connell from The Mummy uh, running a, uh, you know, from The Mummy franchise running a 1301. And uh, yeah, oh, yeah, I, I saw that. I was like, that's ah, pretty sexy. I kind of, I kind of want to get one of those, but I don't have enough wall space left over. And then next, next to that is my my retirement gift. One of the coolest uh, retirement gifts ever. It's a, it's an old school fifth group flash beret on a skull with, you know, uh, crossed arrows, the dagger, and a photo of me and a silly quote below. Um, nice. But uh, yeah, was, that was my retirement gift from my uh, my instructor detachment when I retired. Um, yeah, if you guys if you guys are looking for cool art, uh, yeah, Lauren Mitchke, I'll plug him. He's he's mm-hmm. cool. he does a lot of cool stuff. Was it uh, just drawn by fire? Is his uh, that sounds about right? Yeah, so many. It's so difficult to keep track. I I actually think that we covered so much good info. If if you guys want, oh, what was it again? Drawn fire art by okay. Lauren. Uh, we can. So I talked to a couple people that wanted to be on this but couldn't. And uh, there were also some suggestions from some other people that would be good panelists to discuss some aspects of this. Um, if you guys want, we can call it a night right now and we can figure out, okay, what should we address on the, uh, on the next episode? What do you guys yeah, think? Hey, Kurt, what, what time is it by you right now, Kurt? Aren't you, is it 13 uh, hours ahead of me? Yeah, it's almost 10 o'clock in the morning. 
Shouldn't you be at work? Heck. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> He's like, I, I do what I want. That's right. That's right. I, I, I do have work up on the other computer. Well, that's good. But um, like uh, someone suggested, like Jose Gordon, that could be cool to have him on with this, especially with his uh, asymmetric warfare group experience. But yeah, we can call it a night, get some final plugs, and then continue on with that chat and figure out what can be the topics for the next go round. What do you, or, or we can keep on going up to you. I'm all, I'm all good, man. I'm, I'm good. I probably should get to some of the work on the other okay. computer here shortly. Um, all right. So then if that's the case, let's get some final thoughts and plugs. If you have plugs, Chris, yeah, I got I got plugs. So again, Chris Cyber from Citizens Fence Research. We our team has been growing, um, and uh, you know added some folks. Uh, I think Caleb Giddings is our most recent uh, recent addition since since I was last on here, along with uh, Ka Clark, Ross Hick, um, and Melody Melody uh, Lauer and John Johnston, myself. Uh, we, we've got classes in Texas in February. We got so check us out on citizensfenceresearch.com. I'm so excited to announce this. Melody has redone the website, has finished it, and it looks really sexy. I was poking the bear every time I did one of these. I was like, Melody still hasn't revamped the website, but she has. It looks really good. Our course schedule's on there. You can also find us on Eventbrite. Uh, and then we've got Citizens Fence Research on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter. I think our handle is at CDR Instructors. But if you search Citizens Fence Research, you'll find us. Uh, yeah, come check us out. I'm, I'm starting to do some uh, airsoft force on force scenario stuff this summer. Um, and I'm probably going to be adding an intermediate level um, uh, technical shooting course that's kind of between tests and standards, which is John's like really technical course and then Mel uh, Melody's FAPS, which is like a, fu uh, a foundational uh, level course. And uh, yeah, so check us out on all those platforms and um, love to love to see you guys come train with me. Cool. What about on like Instagram and stuff like that to find you? Uh, yeah. So, I mean, so we're on citizen defense research on Instagram. I am on Instagram. However, mostly you're just going to find photos of like me and my four-year-old getting into adventures and stuff. Uh, and that's yeah. Chris, you know, Chris Seifert, if you search me, you'll find me. Um, and then, Oh, also uh, I, so I have a blog. I took basically like a year off cause I was busy with college and stuff, but I have a blog called amplifiedbeing.com. I've started getting back into that there. I don't just talk gun stuff by any stretch. I'm talking guns, a little bit of, I don't want to say politics, uh, national policy, foreign defense stuff. Um, and then just everything from, uh, you know, ancient Roman philosophers to, you know, the, the price of the, you know, the price of Jack in a box going up and how their tacos are now a dollar 29 instead of 99 cents and how, how much I dislike what? that. So, yeah, well, it's funny. Cause like the tacos at Jack in a box for 99 cents from like the eighties until like five years ago, hmm. which means either inflation doesn't work on tacos or they were gouging the crap out of us for like 30 years before they finally raised their prices. Uh, anyway, but yeah, so I've got a blog, just kind of a catch all where I talk about all kinds of stuff, amplifiedbeing.com. And I think that's, uh, I think that's everything. Cool. Kurt. Uh, I, I will plug uh citizens defense research, search them out, get some good training. USA uh, jobs. Dar Dar Darcy, <laughs> take, take the Tusk course. Um, it, it will help. Uh, Something I was thinking I was going to ask a question on. Does kid abuse do vision training or just movement training? Well, that's a good question. I don't know. I had her on podcast a oh, year three ago. I uh, remember her talking specifically more about movement. I don't remember if we discussed vision. Um, I, I know uh, 
Max Michelle, I've been seeing some of his stuff recently. He's been posting a lot of him doing uh, visual and decision-making things, uh, tapping colored lights and other things that lead him to perform actions. Uh, so there is stuff out there. Um, have a figure out what your deficiencies are, figure out a plan to correct those deficiencies and then work that plan step by step so that you can get better and then start all over again. Yeah. Um, all, all, all my social media is just for me, mostly it's pictures of food or my nieces or my wife um, and puppies because pup, who doesn't love puppies? Um, so I'm, I'm not looking to be found and don't want to. Uh, Pretty reasonable. That, join, join primary and secondary. There you go. Cool. Well, awesome discussion. Yeah, really enjoyed this one. And I do think that we're going to have to continue. Uh, we'll figure out what to talk about specifically. Big thanks to our sponsors. Uh, big thanks to Big Tech's Ordnance, Overwatch Precision, Filster, Primary Arms, Walther. Also, big thank you to the Patreon subscribers. Uh, we had several watching today. Uh, I think most everyone was pretty much just listening. Not too many questions or comments came up. I checked on uh, on our Discord and I mentioned, this is a really good conversation. And yeah, they, they're in agreement. Uh, if you happen to be in the market for a fixed blade or a like a folding pocket knife, I break mine out. That's just in my pocket. Scallywag Tactical gave me a code. And so if you go to Scallywag Tactical, the code is all caps, PNS10. That gets you 10% off. Not sure. What, uh, I know I have other topics coming up, but I can't think of what they are. Uh, it's funny how being on day shift, all of a sudden, yeah, the time goes by so damn fast and trying to put together one of these. It's before I know it, I should have done a podcast the day prior. Um, this I'm going to try to push, uh, try to get this one out ASAP. No reason to, to, to slow that up. Um, there's something I had. Yes. As I say, at least once, and this time it will be twice an episode, make sure you're supporting those sources that you have found to be beneficial. There are these algorithms and the algorithms are working in favor of the companies or the entities that are running the media. It does not help. It doesn't help the, the, the little guy. It doesn't help the good info. Entertainment's fun. And I love, I love being enter entertained. I love watching entertaining gun channels, but unfortunately the educational or more serious minded ones like primary and secondary don't get the benefit of having the algorithm work in their favor. That goes for the algorithm on any of these platforms. So that's where you come in as the listener. Make sure you're listening where when you listen, make sure you share, make sure you like, make sure you subscribe. If there's stuff that we're producing that helps you, yeah, share it. Um, and I, I already thank the Patreon subscribers. If you go to patreon.com slash primary and secondary, you can help support the network. We have all these different resources, everything from the website, primaryandsecondary.com to the forum, primaryandsecondary.com slash forum. We have Discord that's available for Patreon subscribers, uh, educational videos, podcasts, audio, video. Um, we have another video series or a video um, weekend coming up that we're planning for April or May. Going to be putting some budget 1911s head to head just because it's interesting to see how these actually perform. I'm not one of those people that I'm not going to be like Sotar or uh, Joe Chambers, and I'm not going to measure everything. What I want to do is I want to shoot these till these break. 
and let's find out. I mean, as a matter of fact, that uh, not that you can see it if you're there, that one right there, the uh, TCP TCP uh, from uh, Dan Wesson is going to be my control. And I have a couple budget 1911s to compare it to. And we're just going to shoot them until they fall apart and figure out, okay, is this, is this viable for something defensive? Cause if we think about, well, we did the video series with uh, three different Taurus pistols. They all did pretty good. Uh, if you consider the average gun owner, they're not taking these thousand round courses multiple times a year. They're going to buy a gun. They're going to shoot it on occasion and it's going to stay. If they're carrying it, they're going to carry it. But for the most part, it's not going to be shot regularly. So defensively, what at, at, how far do we need this defensive gun to go? Does it need to be a chambers and we can run thousands and thousands of rounds between cleanings? Yeah, I, I like that. Or can it be something that's as long as you're maintaining it and you're paying attention to it and you're not shooting it till it falls apart, eh, it should be okay. So that's, that's one of the goals I want to find out just because it's fun and it's fun to shoot guns. So that's all. I think I will end this so I can start editing ASAP. I still have a couple hours before I go to bed because I am on day shift. So that is all. I will talk to y'all later.